0: Is Ella is Kate Macy, and you are listening to More Than Child's Play with your host, my mommy, Lacey Morici, and my Aunt Nicole Surgeon. They are authors, therapists, and most importantly, mommies, and man, can they talk. So sit back and relax and learn from their village. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of More Than Child's Play podcast. This is Lacey Marisi, speech language pathologist. And today I am very excited to be joined by Meg Lico. Welcome, Meg. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Meg um, specializes and works with children with cleft lip and cleft palate. So I wanted to have her on the podcast to share all this wonderful knowledge that she has about that diagnosis with um, the pediatric population. So we can all learn from her and again, gain more knowledge as we work with families and support them and in, in their children. So just let me formally introduce you to Meg a little bit um, more formally, for a better, lack of a better word. Meg Lico is the cleft palate and craniofacial team, speech language pathologist at the Department of Plastic Surgery at NYU Langone Health. She earned her bachelor's of arts degree in public health at the University of South Carolina with a special focus in pediatric health promotion, education and behavior. She earned her master's of science degree in communication sciences and disorders at Columbia University in New York City. And it was there that Meg developed a specialized interest in working with the cleft palate and craniofacial population. Meg completed her clinical fellowship at the Children's Hospital in Outpatient Pediatrics and developed a rich experience working with children, including, but not limited to, those diagnosed with cleft palate, craniofacial disorders, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, autism, and seizure disorders. In her free time, Meg also enjoys working as a speech research consultant for the nonprofit Smile Train. So again, I wanted to invite Meg on because again, she has this niche, this specialized interest in this area um, of diagnosis of children with cleft lip and cleft palate and craniofacial um, diagnoses. And so I just knew she was going to be a wealth of knowledge to help all of us that serve children in the EI population or serve children in the school population or in private practices to just gain more insight, to understand this diagnosis better, to understand this diagnosis better and how it impacts these children in their development, to support their families better in learning and understanding the diagnosis and then down the road advocating for their children should they need to. I was just sharing with Meg before we started recording that I have worked as an EI SLP um, for 16 years. And right now I do have a kiddo on my caseload with cleft lip, cleft palate. However, I think she's only the second kid in 16 years of working in EI that I've had on my caseload with this diagnosis it's my you know it's my professional obligation it's my ethical responsibility to understand this diagnosis as her slp as any child slp with this diagnosis but because i see it so rarely I need refreshers you know when i get a kid on my case with this diagnosis i need a refresher i need to remember what it means i need to understand what it you know what it can what implications there are down the road for that child with their development as they grow and change and you know and to work with the family to i have to first understand before i can help them understand so i think all of us working with children um, whether you're a speech language pathologist a developmental specialist. A PT and OT that works with children just understanding what this diagnosis means for these kids to support them, but also then to support their family. Again, I think this will benefit all of us um, as we listen and learn from Meg. So let's just jump right in. So Meg, can you give us um, a very friendly general definition of what cleft lip and cleft palate is
1: Hi, everyone. Yeah, and happy um, Cleft and Craniofacial Awareness Month. It's uh, July. Um, So perfect and fitting, very fitting for this month. Um, Yeah, so cleft lip and cleft palate are basically openings in the lip or the palate, palate being like the roof of your mouth. So if you were to push your tongue up there, that's your palate. There's the hard and soft palate, um, but ultimately the palate, just general roof of mouth to understand. Um, Or you can actually have both. So you can have an opening of the lip and an opening of the palate, and it extends all the way from the palate to the lip. So there's different types of cleft lips, different types of cleft palate, or we would refer to it as cleft lip and palate if it's a combination of the two. Um, And basically what's happening is that during pregnancy, it's actually very early on. So in um, a mom's like first trimester, as the baby's growing, the sutures um, don't kind of fuse properly as the baby's developing. And so it leads to these kind of openings in the mouth or the lip. Um, and again, that's all in the first trimester during pregnancy. And that's when everything kind of fuses during the time frame. And a lot of um people don't think it's very common, but actually, it's pretty common. It's one of the most common birth defects um, that are found at de- either at delivery or even um prenatally, which we can talk about a little later. And um, a lot of people will ask me, like, why don't I see you know children in, in the US with um, children with cleft lip and palate if it's so common. And usually my response is that are in the U S you know, we're very thankful that our surgical techniques have improved and our surgeries are early on. So a lot of times, um, when I'm working with my kids who are seven or eight, you almost can't even um, tell that they've been affected by a cleft lip or palate. Um, and if they have an isolated cleft palate, meaning there's no lip involvement, then you wouldn't see anything anyway. It would just be the hole or the opening at the roof of the mouth.
0: Wow, and what do you know? That st- statistic off the top of your head, like one in how many births have?
1: I think it's one in five hundred to one in seven fifty. I think there's some varying statistics, but um, a lot of people say one in six to kind of meet in the middle, um, one in yes. six hundred. So it's about one in five hundred to one in seven fifty, and that and heart defects are the usually the most common that are uh, noted uh, at birth in the U.S.
0: Wow, and and does does cleft palate occur in isolation? More commonly than cleft palate and lip, or you know, is there? Yeah, there's some
1: varying statistics out there with that. Uh, I think every year they're coming out with new research at the ACPA on if it's an isolated cleft palate that's more common. It also gets a little complicated because there's something called a submucous cleft palate where you don't even see the opening in the roof of the mouth. Um, but there is an uh, opening in kind of where the, the tissue and the muscles are. And uh, so it looks like there's no palate, but there actually is. So then those don't usually get discovered until much later in life for kids four, five, six, seven, even sometimes eight or nine years of age. So then it's like, do you factor those into the statistic? Because technically those are in a palate. Uh, so I t- normally will say that, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, cleft lip isolated I see, um, but those are less likely to have speech deficits versus a cleft lip and palate combined or an isolated
0: cleft palate. Gotcha. Okay. And when does this get diagnosed? You mentioned something prenatally there. So it's not something that has to be seen after the child is born to be diagnosed.
1: Right. So if it's a cleft lip, um, a lot of times with the new technology with ultrasounds and prenatal ultrasounds, the um, OBGYN or the technician is able to uh, actually identify the cleft lip on an ultrasound, um, sometimes at the 20-week mark, sometimes a little later. It just depends on the technology and it, you know, where the baby is on the ultrasound, because you can actually physically see on the ultrasound the cleft lip. Um, it's much harder. It's almost impossible, very, very hard to determine just an isolated cleft path. But a lot of times, if they have the cleft lip, we um, will speak to the families as if we're potentially expecting a palate as well, palate involvement. Um, and it's so interesting because we'll get referrals from um, the prenatal uh, uh, from the prenatal ultrasound, and we get to consult with the family, which is one of my favorite things to do because usually the family comes in, they're overwhelmed, they're nervous, they're scared, they don't know what a cleft lip, you know, means for their child. And so at our team, and I, I know other teams do this as well we will meet with, or the parents will meet with myself, the nurse practitioner, our dietitian, and our orthodontics team. Um, and then they'll also have separate appointments with our plastic surgeon to go over kind of the surgical techniques and looking at the surgical timeline. Uh, and they'll also meet with our social worker for that psychosocial support too, because it's very overwhelming at that time. But I find that the prenatal consultations are amazing because it allows the family to feel prepared going into the delivery at the hospital So we do have the prenatal consultations. And then of course, sometimes you just can't see it on the ultrasound and it's usually discovered um, at delivery at the hospital. Um, Usually when they do their first like, well, baby well check, they'll um, notice it uh, right after delivery. And then they'll refer to our team after that.
0: Awesome. That's so great that you do those prenatal consultations with the family. Cause like you said, I mean, it can be so scary for a family that's this is their first child or a family that's never known anyone with cleft lip, cleft palate, you know, so they don't know what to expect. So I think that's awesome. And I hope that all craniofacial teams do do that. And I think you kind of said most do that you know of, but that's wonderful just to help those families kind of understand it before they even have to, you know, hold that baby for the first time. Um, now you mentioned just quickly, as you were saying, you you meet with that family for those prenatal visits, um, nurse practitioner meets with them, Dietitian. And you mentioned maybe dentists?
1: Social work and yep, orthodontics. So orthodontics
0: orthodontics
1: will basically meet because there's something called nasal alveolar molding. Um, It was created here at NYU. Um, And there's also nasal stenting, which is um, kind of a different version of it, basically to help the Tissue. So when a baby is born, the, the skin, the tissue is very plastic, meaning that we can kind of mold it and shape it as we want. And so um, if there's a lip involvement or maybe to the gap um, or the opening extends up through the nose, up to the nostril, and we want the nose to look more symmetrical, our surgeon and orthodontic team, uh, teams work together to do something called alveolar molding, which basically helps the child, um, you know, close the gap as much as possible prior to surgery so that when the surgeon goes in to do the surgery, uh, it's easier. It's not as large of a gap or it's a more symmetrical gap. Um, and so it's kind of, um, hard because you have to start that NAM process very early, like basically almost right after the baby's born up until that three month mark when the child would usually be getting the lip surgery. And, um, it's not offered everywhere. It is a very intensive program. So not all of our families choose to do it, but it's wonderful. It has some, um, it's been proven in the research to have some great effects in terms of aesthetic, um, outcomes. And, um, and, you know, I think it's a great option. And so we do have to counsel the families on that pretty early on so that they know what needs to be done, how often they need to be coming into our center for between zero months and
0: three months. Right. And that, that whole process there, like you mentioned quickly, um, is probably the reason why some of us don't even know kids have had cleft, lip, you know, or cleft palate, because, you know, when you start early and yeah, get that surgery early and get it taken care of. That's wonderful. Good. Okay. So we talked about statistically how many kids are born every year with cleft lip and palate. Um, now I know sometimes cleft lip palate can be associated with syndromes and I know there's lots of syndromes out there, so we can't talk about all of them, but just what are some of those syndromes that you most commonly see cleft lip palate associated with?
1: Yeah, so I think um, one of the biggest ones that many people might know about is called pierre Robin sequence. Um, sometimes people don't like to refer to it as a syndrome versus a sequence because it's more of a collection of, um, you know, facial um, differences that kind of co-occur at the same time. So... Uh, Piero Ben usually has to do with a very small jaw um, and also a cleft palate. So if you have those two things, um, there's also some other um, facial features that come along with it, but those are the kind of the two big markers. And the smaller jaw can usually lead to some airway issues as well. Um, If the jaw is set so far back that the the child might have difficulty um, breathing, you know, when they're born or maybe a little later and they might even need, um, you know, an additional surgery to help open up that airway. So I work with a lot of children Piero Ben, and if you think about from a speech perspective too, if your you know jaw is set back further, your mouth is smaller, and things aren't aligned, you know that's going to affect your speech as well. So I see a lot of children with um, Pierre Ben. Um, another common one is uh, it has a few names, uh, but I refer to it as 22q11.2 deletion syndrome. Um, we're learning more and more about that one every day, and that one um, sometimes has a higher prevalence of a submucous cleft palate versus a regular, but you can have either or, um, or you can just have what's called VPI, which I can kind of talk a little bit more about later, where you don't have a open palate, but you still have difficulty um, closing off the nasal cavity during speech. And that can be a company, 22Q has a lot of other um, you know, symptoms. Sometimes um, the child can have some behavioral or learning disabilities, um, psychiatric issues. And again, that's not every child, but you know, they're at increased risk for all of that. Um, they can have low muscle tone, things like that. Um, And then I also work with a lot of craniofacial syndromes that sometimes will have a cleft palate and sometimes won't. Um, So Crouzon syndrome, Treacher Collins. I don't know if you've ever heard of the book Wonder um, or seen the movie Wonder, which is amazing, but that child has Treacher Collins or it's based on a child with Treacher Collins. And um, a lot of those children can also have a cleft kind of co-occurring.
0: Okay. Okay, so baby is born baby is diagnosed with cleft palate, cleft lip, or cleft lip and palate. What does this mean? You know, when, when newborns come out, really their job is to eat (laughs) and dirty their diaper, right? So those are like the two major functions and sleep. Sorry, I forgot sleep, but uh, you know, Naturally, if there's a hole in the roof of your mouth or if you your lips can't close all the way because you have a hole, you know, in your lip, that's going to cause problems with feeding. So talk to us about that, what what the implications are for children with cleft lip palate with feeding.
1: Yeah, so some children, if they have a unilateral cleft lip, meaning it's just on one side of their lip um, and it's not both sides, Um, Some children can feed absolutely fine and some babies can feed fine. Um, A lot of parents, this is a large source of anxiety for them. And so it's a lot of the dietician, the nurse practitioner and myself kind of giving them the supports that early on. Um, And usually they're potentially coming in for the NAM appointments anyway with our orthodontics. So we can always check in then and and kind of bounce ideas off of, um, off like with each other or, you know, with the parents in the room, if they're having any, you know, concerns. Um, A lot of people think that a baby has to go into the NICU right away if there's a palate or a lip involvement. And that's actually not the case. I actually learned that from our awesome nurse practitioner who um, helps on the inpatient side as well. Right when they're born, she'll go see them, see them in the in our delivery um, area, in our delivery department. And so um, sometimes they can be discharged from the hospital um, at, at a regular time. They don't need an extended stay in the NICU. Certainly if there's something like Piero Ben where they're having airway issues or something like that, of course, there are, we always have children that have to stay in the NICU like any other population, um, but if it's just a cleft lip, um, you know, obviously, yes, it's harder to create that seal around the nipple, but usually we can position the nipple, um, whether it's breastfeeding or bottle feeding, to the side um, of the, the non-cleft side, so if it's just a one-sided cleft lip, then or unilateral cleft lip, as we would call it, then we can try and work on that, um, but even then, some parents still feel like, um, you know, breastfeeding is too difficult. And so we do encourage bottle feeding if the parent is, you know, willing and open to do that. And we actually have specialty bottles that we can provide that were created specifically for um, cleft palate. And um, some are even, you know, kind of used on a broader sense for like other children, for example, children with cerebral palsy, things like that. Um, When the palate's involved, that's when it gets a little bit harder. And the reason, and I'm sure all the SLPs out there are totally gonna resonate with what I'm saying. um, When you have an open hole in the palate, it doesn't allow the baby to compress the nipple with the tongue and with a cleft lip, you can absolutely do that because your palate is still intact, right? Um, And it doesn't allow the baby to create that negative pressure or that suction that you need in your mouth for that, what we refer to as the suck, swallow, breathe ratio that you need when you're a baby um, to feed and get the ounces that you need. Um, and so sometimes the baby can get tired out, um, fatigued, or feeds can take longer than we want. Like if a feed's taking like 45 minutes to an hour, we're like, whoa. Um, so, you know, we wanna encourage the suck, swallow, breathe pattern. So we have certain strategies we'll give the parents. So if the cleft is also kind of on one side of the palate, we'll try to encourage them to move to the other side. Um, we usually do encourage bottle feeds for if it's a large palate um, or a large opening. And we also have, um, you know, different feeding positioning strategies for them versus what you, you know, might do for a child without a cleft palate um, to help them with the pressure. Um, we talk about the bottles during the prenatal consultation, which is really big, and we find that every baby has a different preference for different bottles. Um, my personal favorite is the Dr. Brown's specialty or special needs, um, feeder bottle. Um, that one's awesome. And I found that that one works and they have different nipple sizes that control the flow rate. So you can, move up as the baby gets stronger and stronger with their feeding, you can increase the flow rate, which I kind of like on the same bottle. um, So that the parents don't have to go buy a trillion different bottles. Um, So I really like that one. Um, And you know, we're, the biggest thing is just weight gain and making sure they're healthy, making sure that they're gaining weight appropriately and preparing them, you know, for surgery so um it's definitely a point of anxiety for our families and i don't blame them it's hard enough i think when you're a parent to have to worry about them getting enough ounces and you're weighing them all the time and it's so anxiety inducing so we try to um counsel the families as much as possible and just provide them with all the supports they need and then certainly if things are not going well if the baby's not gaining weight you know we get more people involved we get doctors involved and you know we talk about other
0: options sure to so make sure that baby's growing and exactly. getting that they need to grow and develop. Good. Okay. Exactly. And now, so let's talk about speech, talking, language, you know, how does having this diagnosis of cleft lip, sorry, cleft lip palate, um, affect that develop, you know, that development for the child learning to talk, um, you know, particular sounds, I know it affects it, but I want you to talk to our audience about what that means for that child down the road.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, the biggest thing when you're starting out, when they're first born, is I start to talk to them about babbling. So that's my first piece. Um, reason being when, you know, as SLPs, we usually kind of put the parameters six to nine months if the child is, you know, developing um, with babbling appropriately compared to same age peers, usually six to nine months is our kind of window. And sometimes the child doesn't get their palate or until 12 months of age, as early as maybe eight months is the earliest I've seen it at our center. It depends, varies on the surgeon and how well the baby's doing from weight gain perspective, all of that. So it's different for each child, but the baby might start babbling, before uh, the palate pair, and so how do you make certain sounds with an open, with an opening in the roof of your mouth, with an open palate? so um i counsel the families i have a, a kind of a worksheet graphic design thing that i am created with the help of our nonprofit, myface my face who did all of the fun graphic design because i'm that's not my forte um and i give it to the families and we go over it whenever they're here for one of their either either for feeding or for orthodontic care um and we kind of go over it then and basically i tell the families like you know a lot of kids will start out with ba, 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 da, 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 pa, 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 you know, those kind of bilabial sounds, maybe an alveolar like daddy or da, da. Um, But unfortunately with certain sounds, you know, our children who have a cleft pot won't be able to make those sounds until after the palate repair because they're just not gonna be able to create the internal pressure that's needed. So what I tell them is, let's focus on the sounds that they can make. Let's focus on their strengths until they get their palate repair. And then once their palate's repaired, we can focus on everything else. Um, And so some of those sounds, which we talk about are Ms. So mama is a super popular one. You can make that sound even with an open palate. Um, na na na, like an N sound, um, you can totally make that. Um, the W, like wah wah or ya yeah, ya yeah, ya, yeah. um, any of those, you it's hard for babies to make an L at that age, but we I, I've seen it so, which is crazy. Um, because these kids have different strengths, so, um, yeah. so they'll make these sounds, and that's what I normally focus on first. So, that's the first step, <laughs> right?
0: So
1: that's our first thing
0: that. yes,
1: yeah. And then after that, um, I usually let them go through their surgery. And then at 18 months, I usually um, do kind of like an evaluation and check in with the family. Um, because you know children can be with a cleft lip and palate can be at risk for a delay in language Um, you know just generally usually it's mild um, unless there's kind of a you know a genetic syndrome maybe associated but certainly I don't want to miss anything and I want them to be able to take advantage of early intervention uh, while we have the opportunity Um, and so I kind of go through all of that and we talk through that and I also am listening to their speech but obviously at that age at 18 months it's very early on so I'm not really uh, looking too much at the palatal function, but I'm kind of keeping it in the back of my mind to, to kind of um, know for when they're like three, four, five. Um, and I think the latest statistic is that about 50, a little over half of kids um, who have a cleft palate will need uh, speech therapy. But a lot of them actually, interestingly enough, with um, you know speech therapy can uh, develop normal speech sound production by around age five. So my biggest thing is get them in early and often, and let's get it done. And then by the time that they're going into first grade, Maybe we don't have to keep working on speech. Um, so that's the other big thing is just the advocate advocating piece, and I know we're going to talk about that later. But you know, um, it's kind of staying on track from 18 months until five years of age, and do working with awesome EI um, specialists and EI SLPs um, that I will like coordinate with because I'm not able to see every single kid on my caseload, and they come from miles and miles away um so you know it's not feasible for the families to come in and see me all the time so we definitely do that as well and and we kind of talk through the phonemes is a really big thing like i was saying earlier with what phonemes can be made which ones are difficult and things like that
0: yeah just explaining that to parents because you know the greater, the greater population doesn't realize, you know, how we produce p- sounds in isolation, how we combine all those sounds into words and what that means when your articulators aren't able to function as they typically should, right? So like you mentioned, the, the P, the B, the, the M, well, M we hear usually early, but P and B especially, those sounds require us to stop the airflow to build up that intraoral pressure and then release the sound. So if you slow yourself down and do that, you realize, oh, if I had a hole in the roof of my mouth or if I had a hole in my cheek or a hole anywhere, yeah. I wouldn't be able to do that. So that's why. So yeah, just that explaining that to family so they understand and then helping them realize and appreciate the strengths that their child has. Maybe they can battle M or L or N or something else. So yeah, I love that. And I love that statistic that you shared. You said about 50% of kids with cleft lip palate that are supported by an SLP by age five, they should be able to
1: develop. So over 50% need speech therapy. Yep. And sure. then the hope is that most of them with dedicated speech therapy and the statistics are starting to show that with dedicated speech therapy by age five, hopefully, um, you know, they're able to be discharged from services and, and develop that normal speech sound production. And I okay. think that's been a great shift just in the general speech pathology world. The whole wait and see kind of approach is kind of going away, which I think is wonderful because the earlier we can start working on the concepts, the better, in my opinion.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Good, 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 good. Yes. ISLPs, your job matters. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
1: ISLPs are so crucial. I think I talked to like two or three EISLPs a week and I just like I'm like what how's it going well like what are you thinking and I get their insights and I learn as much from them as they learn from me and then they want to know like about the structural sides of it which is kind of my piece going forward um and and we kind of collaborate which is really fun and um I've met a lot of great people that way and EISLPs are way more creative than I am so I uh fully support you guys yeah. um, <laughs> and then once they go into the school age years usually these are the more persistent Cases um, There's certain errors that are actually not seen in the general population that can kind of persist. And those are the ones that are difficult to um, kind of undo or unlearn for the child. So things such as glottal stops. So as we talked about earlier, to use the PNB example, if the child's trying to make the PNB with an open palate, it's either going to escape up through the nose, um, because there's literally an open hole, or um, they're gonna find another way to try and make that sound that'll sound close to it, but not quite right. And so they'll make it down here at the level of their vocal folds, a glottal stop, like an uh, 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 sound instead of puh, pa puh. Or they'll make what's called a pharyngeal fricative, which is back here for certain sounds, uh, common with the S sound. Um, when you can't have that continuous airflow, they'll usually do a pharyngeal fricative, or they'll push it out of the nose. So they'll say, I know it might be hard to hear on the podcast, but essentially the air is escaping through the nose um, and they're pushing it out through the nose because they are trying to find any way to create that pressure that they can. So if you think about it, the child's actually smart in the sense that they're trying to find any kind of way to make it and they just physically can't. So then later on, it's really hard to undo some of these errors, these glottal stops, these pharyngeal fricatives that aren't common in the rest of the population. Like the GFTA, the Goldman Fristow does not have, you know, coding symbols for pharyngeal fricatives as far as I'm aware. So, um, you know, we have to really work on those. And that's when I kind of come into play. And EISLPs who are looking to learn more about um, cleft palate, I can either talk with them about it or some programs also offer it. And many EISLPs are very knowledgeable about this stuff. So it just kind of depends on their comfort level and how much they want me involved.
0: Right. I love that collaboration though. That's so critical for the care of the child, you know, just be able, cause again, this is your niche, right? This is your area of specialty. So the EISLP that's treating the child can lean on you, reach out to you for answers to specific questions you guys can share. And you said you even benefit from talking to other SLPs that are working with the children. So I, I love that. And I encourage everyone to always collaborate with other professionals in the same field, outside of your field all the time. Cause I, I mean, in in my experience in working in EI and even my experience in the school system, I've learned so much from so many others. You know, when I've asked questions, when I've reached out, when I've collaborated, it's it benefits everyone and especially the family and children that we're serving. So, okay. So I want to, you mentioned quickly earlier, VPI. Yes. And I want you to talk a little bit, explain to us what that is and what it means. And then what can we do? Is there anything we can do to support that or improve it?
1: Yes, so uh, VPI is known as velopharyngeal insufficiency. There's also some variations on the term, so velopharyngeal incompetency um, or inadequacy. I, you know, it, there's you know a plethora of different kind of ways you can phrase it, but I like to refer to it as velopharyngeal insufficiency. And this is basically when, and um, this is, I have to give a little shout out to my mentor who kind of taught me everything in grad school, who has this amazing analogy. Basically, um, the velum, which is also known as the soft palate, uh, is what moves up and down uh, in the kind of the back of your throat, if you think about it, to in a, what we would refer to as the nasopharynx to close off the nasal cavity for, in English, all of our sounds except for M, N, and the NG sound, the ng sound. And all the other sounds should be made essentially through the mouth. Um, So the velum or the soft palate has to move up and close like a door. So the velum is closing like a door and it's shutting off the nasal cavity so that air only goes through the mouth. So when you make the sound, your velum is moving up back here and it is closing off the nasal cavity so that it doesn't sound like an M. Um, and with children with cleft palate sometimes even if the palate repair was beautiful and they have a brand new shiny palate and they're feeding well and everything is going amazing and they're thriving. Um, sometimes that palate cannot reach or is not able to reach or is too short um, or is just having difficulty closing fully like to uh, creating a full seal. Um, and so that is when we have to get involved from a surgical standpoint. Uh, and there's, I, I don't wanna give certain like specifics like of incidents because it varies uh, by so many factors, whether there's genetics involved. So if there's genetic syndrome, um, whether the, where the repair was done, um, if the palate, um, sometimes the kid actually has, a uh, great closure, but then it comes off like VPI because they're having to learn that kind of um, closure, which I can talk about a little later. So the rates kind of vary. Um, I would say maybe like a fourth to a fifth of patients that I see just that's more of a subjective kind of clinical observation um, of children who have a cleft palate um, need VPI surgery. So you ask like, what can be done? Um, if it's true VPI or if you're an SLP and you're in the school system and you're like, I have tried every speech therapy technique known to cleft palate speech and nothing is being done and the air is still coming out of the nose because that's what's going to happen. You're going to see all the air is going to sh- come out of the nose um, and you're not going to be able to control it. You've done every speech therapy technique. You can refer to a team and we can do a nasoendoscopy, which is essentially this Um, Imaging that we do alongside ENT and plastics um, work together and we can actually look. It's like a little camera. I call it the noodle with my kids. Um, We're working on like a fun video, almost like child life specialist like so that the kids can feel comfortable getting this done because they're awake and they have to speak during it. Um, usually not done uh, until the age at least four. Four is the earliest. And even then it's very difficult just because the child's so young, um, but earliest would be four for me personally. And um, we would put the camera out there, this little noodle that has a camera attached and we would watch the velum, and we would see if that door is closing or if there's an opening in that door, there's a leak in that door, um, or if there's not a correct seal. And if the door is not working properly, we consult with our plastic surgeons here and they come up with a surgical technique plan um, to kind of remediate that.
0: Okay. So, is there anything in speech therapy that we can do to to strengthen that that you know that soft palate that that velum to get it to get better closure, or is it something that just with talking will will strengthen if it's able to with time?
1: Yeah, so good question. And there's a lot of confusion about this. I think um, they're doing some research studies on if like strengthening exercises for the will help. Um, you know, non-speech oral motor exercises are not shown at all to help um, with VPI um, or any kind of cloth palate speech error. But um, a lot of times, what the biggest thing I think for speech therapists to know is what can be thought. A lot of people think that the child might have VPI, but in reality, it's actually um, a learned error. What I was saying with that kind of um, those other terms that sometimes people use, when the child actually only has nasal air escape on certain sounds, it's usually something that could actually be fixed in speech therapy. So that's the most interesting part. So if it's VPI, true VPI, usually you're seeing air escape, um, especially on the nasal endoscopy too. You'll see it on almost all sounds or all sounds, um, some form of a gap. But there's a lot of kids out there, right? A lot of my kids on my caseload for the S and Z sounds, or maybe those higher continuant those harder continuing sounds like S and Z. They can say pup, 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 puppy, baby boy. They can say every high pressure sound known to man, except when it gets to the S and Z, the child will say, For let's say the word um, Sally, they might say Sally. And they're pushing it out on purpose through their nose without realizing it, which is one of those learned errors um, that we talked about earlier. The child's trying so hard to create the pressure. And a lot of times immediately the thought is VPI surgery. And actually when they come to me, and when you do the nasal I'm like, oh, this is actually what we call phoneme specific VPI. And that is the kind of VPI that you can treat as a speech therapist. So, um, and you would do that through a different, a number of different kind of, um, strategies. I plug the nose and see to have them feel it. Um, this is kind of funny, but like a lot of times kids will like, um, I had a kid who actually passed gas because he was pushing so hard (laughs) on trying to get the air out that he, and the mom was just laughing. She was just dying because he was pushing so hard. So when you plug the nose and you feel the kid pushing out chances are it's not escaping like a leak through a door it's actually being pushed out right. and so it's confusing though it takes a lot of speech samples it takes a lot of practice and trial therapy to get to that conclusion of if it's phoneme specific vpi or actual true structural issue So don't be afraid to consult with like, uh, you know, craniofacial cleft palate SLP or, um, you know, trial some therapy certainly. And I always recommend just trial everything you can. And if it's still not working, you know, certainly refer to us for surgery
0: amazing. I did not know that I thought VPI was VPI was VPI. So now yeah. I know it can be phoneme specific. That's so interesting. And I, now I'm really excited to listen to my little one and, and start like charting what sounds I'm hearing that nasal yeah. air escape or what sounds she doesn't have any um, of that nasal airflow. So yeah, awesome.
1: phoneme okay. specific, also known as nasal fricatives is like the new term that they've coined um, basically because, you know, when you hear a VPI, you it totally make sense. You're like VPI structural structural which is how we kind of want you to think about it um so when you say i usually will say oh he has a nasal frication error on s so like if i'm doing the goldman fristo and all the s's are through the nose i'm tracking i write nf nasal fricative and i'm like okay that is a phoneme specific error and i can work on that in therapy versus if there's air escape on all the gfta sounds i'm like okay i need to get him in for a nasal
0: right and, and again, that's just kind of a learned error, like you said. Maybe before surgery, before palate repair, that was yes. the only way they could get the air out or try to imitate those sounds, particular sounds. So, yeah, it's a learning.
1: Exactly.
0: Which exactly. a lot of speech errors are learned over time, and we have to just reestablish and reteach. And yeah, so awesome. Okay, good. All right, so let's just back up a little bit. So, little ones born with cleft lip palate and you mentioned kind of you know learning to feed is kind of the first goal obviously to figure out a safe way for the child to to eat and gain weight and grow and develop as we want them to but when did when did you typically start talking about surgery when does surgery typically happen i'm sure it varies a little bit case to case but what's the general kind of you know time frame for surgery to repair palate and lip
1: Yeah, it varies certainly by surgery, I mean, surgeon center, also um, country as well. So in the U.S., we're very lucky. Um, You know, the U.S., it's done earlier than other countries. So um, I'll just use my center for a reference as kind of a general point. Um, We usually repair the cleft lip around three months of age, and they'll maybe undergo that nasal alveolar molding if family decides to pursue it between zero and three months. Um, and then usually the pallets repaired, um, between eight and 12 months of age, eight being the earliest I've personally seen, um, you know, there's a push from SLPs to maybe do it a little earlier so that when they're babbling, they can make all the sounds, but there's a lot of things that we have to consider past just speech, right? I, like we talked about weight gain, are they ready for surgery? Things like that. Um, and obviously this change is based on the child, um, and obviously access to surgical care. So just from my global health background, you know, not everyone has access to surgeries that early and that timely. Um, And so they might get their surgeries done later. Um, And then the last thing is that a lot of people don't know that there's a lot of, um, you know, co-occurrence of of hearing difficulties, otitis media, um, eustachian tube, or middle ear dysfunction. All of those things can be present, um, you know, in cleft palate and cleft lip, and it's a higher incidence than the average, you know, child, you know, average population. So a lot of times at the um, cleft palate repair between eight and 12 months, they might also at the same time have ENTs come in and insert ear tubes.
0: Yes. Yep. I had a little one with that same exact experience. And I was going to ask you about that. So it is a pretty high likelihood, high occurrence of kids with cleft lip palate to have some an increased likelihood of ear infections and, and yeah,
1: yeah. Or even just kind of difficulty with draining. And so they need those tubes. Um, and usually it's, can be resolved as we always say, get him, him or her in as soon as possible to ENT and let's get those monitored. And basically the ENT will then make the decision on if ear tubes are necessary, or if they think that the child, once the palate's repaired, will really be able to kind of just kind of, um, move forward after the, the pallets are paired and not require the ear tube insertion. And that kind of just depends on frequent checks. So so they're always going to ENT. It's a lot of appointments for parents in the beginning, and it is overwhelming. Um, And so, you know, all of that's related. If you think about like the musculature and everything, I won't go too you know, into jargon and specifics, um, you know, but Everything is intertwined back there where we talk about the soft palate. There's a lot of muscles back there, and a lot of those muscles we use to um, have the eustachian tube working properly and to equalize the pressure that we need, um, you know, how we would if our ears are popping and things like that. So we um, always monitor that. It is a higher occurrence. For children, um, usually, um, again, uh, genetic syndromes are very different. But um, you know, for your average child, they don't usually require like permanent hearing assistance, um, and they just require that frequent check with the ENT and potentially ear tubes. So, um, you know, the hope is that they don't need hearing aids or cochlear implants um, or have that kind of sensory neural loss. But certainly, I have children who have genetic syndromes who um, do also benefit from that as well. Um, and it's kind of just a case by case basis. And then. Um, A lot of people don't know too, kind of a fun fact, um, that when you get your palate repair, it doesn't end there. So um, a lot of times if there's lip involvement, you need another surgery down the road around seven to eight years of age called an alveolar bone graft. And um, that's not for every child, depends. um, But certainly a lot of my kids need an ABG, what was referred to an ABG. And then at facial maturity, there's an option to get something called a LaFort 1, which is essentially advancing the maxilla forward. for aesthetic purposes. And a lot of our children also undergo rhinoplasties or septoplasties um, for aesthetic purposes or, um, you know, lip revisions, so that, you know, they can feel comfortable in their own skin. And it's certainly up to them and it's their choice um, whether they do that, but it's usually not, the cleft palate is usually not the last repair. So we follow these um, children from birth until like 21.
0: Wow, yeah, I was gonna ask that. Cause you know, I mean, these little ones are getting that surgery, that major surgery done at a point in their life where they still have a lot of growing to do. So it, you know, that, I mean, wow, you know, it's amazing. They can do it that young and it makes such a huge impact and change for them, a positive change. But I mean, understandably down the road, once, you know, when you said they reach facial maturity, when everything's done growing in their face, they might need something done aesthetically, just to feel like you mentioned a little more comfortable in their skin and, and thank goodness we have that ability in the US to provide these surgeries and have the expertise and the surgeons available to do that. Cause you kind of touched on other countries, it's not as accessible for families and children to Right,
1: to and yeah. working for Smile Train um, has been amazing. And I had the opportunity right before COVID to um, go to Nigeria with my mentor. And we did a speech therapy training there. And you know, their difficulties are, are and what their barriers are are very different than what our barriers are. Um, and so it really does vary by country. And we kind of have to be aware of that, especially when I have children who come from other countries or are adopted from other countries um, to kind of recognize all of that. Um, speech therapy itself is not um, as recognized in other countries as in the US. Um, Certainly there are wonderful SLPs, uh, amazing leaders, amazing surgeons in all these countries. But I know like, for example, one of the biggest things was just simply when I was in Nigeria access to transportation, such a large country and Um, a lot of the families couldn't get to their speech therapy appointments or even like their surgery or follow up appointments. um, And that was a barrier in itself. Um, And that's not on anybody. It's just, you know, something that it has to be addressed. Whereas here, you know, we're lucky to have, you know, Uh, a social worker here who helps with transportation um, for those who can't afford it. And, you know, we have public transportation, you know, we have a lot of options. Um, And so I learned a lot by kind of moving, uh, you know, there for, you know, a couple of weeks and doing that training. And uh, it was really
0: eye opening. I bet. Thank you for doing that. That's so wonderful to be able to have that opportunity, but then to have that outreach to help people in other countries that are in different situations and to Spread the awareness and to advocate and educate others. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah. laughs> You're so nice. <laughs> so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So we kind of have touched on this, but I would like for you to give us a nice bullet-pointed summary as early intervention SLPs, and for families of of little ones who have this diagnosis of cleft lip palate what are the like major three four five things however many you want to mention that we need to be looking for watching for getting ahead of for these kids and their families
1: absolutely so hearing number one making sure audiology is involved or ent is involved and hearing getting tested pediatrician screening or full audiology exam that's number one to me Number two is looking at language development, because I can't do anything about the speech uh, or even an EISLP can't do anything about the speech until we've got uh, our language up. So our um, if I'm noticing that the child is a little bit mildly delayed, not a big deal, but let's focus on that first. And then I like to personally fine-tune the speech later, or you can even embed it in the language therapy. But you know, um, ideally, I want them to be prepared and be able to communicate their wants and needs and be prepared for um, communicating with Parents and their parents and their friends. And so that to me is number two. Then number three is uh, for EI, you know, starting to look at those speech errors, um, starting to see uh, if there's any glottal stops, things like that, and certainly coordinating with um, other SLPs if you need to. Um, For parents, I would say the biggest thing is just advocating for EI services, trying to get the highest frequency you can um, if it's recommended to you. Um, and you know, I know in New York state, and it's very different in every state, but um, actually in New York state, a cleft palate diagnosis automatically qualifies you for EI services. Whether or not you meet the criteria, quote unquote, which it's like normally the 25% delay, um, you can as a parent advocate. And I don't know if that's the case for every state, I don't think it is, but Looking into your EI um, kind of guidelines in your state and figuring out what you can do um, with the diagnosis you have. Um, And if you have really a lot more concerns, so if, you know, you're worried about some cognitive concerns or play skills, things like that, um, certainly I always recommend genetic testing if the parent's comfortable with it, because you can get a lot of answers and you can get some amazing support groups. Um, You know, if you find out that your child has, for example, 22q, you know, they have amazing foundations, also known as philocardiofacial syndrome. There's a Trillion nonprofits that are so helpful give you all the resources. So I would say if you're having some greater concerns um, past just maybe the speech, you know, certainly get genetic testing done and see if you can find some answers for your child and resources for yourself and your family. So those are my big those are my big bullet points for EI. I would say.
0: Awesome. Okay. Thank you. That makes it nice and clean and packaged, <laughs> easier for yeah. us to tackle as we head out <laughs> to treating um, these children and their families okay and so now let's just talk quickly about okay so we've got the little one through early intervention so now they're three and that's usually the time that you know the team the ei team will help them transition into the services provided by the schools the public school system or help them even transition into private services if that's what the family prefers or is looking for so as the parent kind of navigates that next step with their child after ei after early intervention what's your recommendation for the family? What do they need to be looking for, advocating for, for their child to get the, the most and the best help that that's out there for their kid?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing I tell families, and it really does depend on their errors as well, because if they have, a lot of my kids also have standard developmental errors. Like a lot of them have, And like an intradental lisp or anything like that. And, you know, those are things that we um, I feel comfortable kind of just saying, you know, if it's just this and we've gotten rid of our glottal stops and there's no VPI and, you know, all of this, then, you know, I kind of leave it up to the school system and the family. Um, But if it's certainly a more involved case, the biggest thing is. Making sure that the um, SLP you're working with is, you know, giving you, I'm very big on home carryover and homework. So, giving them homework to practice. Um, and also, if they're willing to collaborate with me, that's awesome. But certainly, I know there's no time of the day for anything. So, it's really hard to collaborate. But even just quick emails back and forth is really helpful, I think. And it puts the family's mind at ease that I know how they're doing in school. And um, the SLP at school is able to know what the surgical timeline looks like. I'm usually kind of the liaison for their care, um, so long as obviously parents sign like a HIPAA form. So I say, um, you know, find an SLP you like that gives you, you know, the carryover you need and the kind of the practice you need because these errors are really hard to work on just in school alone. You really got to um, kind of loop the parents in. And if the parents are willing to do it, I always ask the parents to request homework, request things, because um, I find that the progress is so much quicker when the parents get involved and try and work on it at home. Um, and I also say, like during IEP meetings, you know, um, we've written letters. So certainly parents can request letters from our craniofacial team that just kind of detail the actual diagnosis. So just going off of the 22Q112 deletion syndrome um, example, um, you know, I just wrote a letter for a child and there's a whole guideline that was created by craniofacial SLPs for school SLPs because it's really hard. Like you said, it's so niche. I like we were talking about earlier before we started the podcast. Like if somebody tried to come to me about a stuttering case and said, we need XYZ, And I don't really, I work with maybe one case a year or one case every two years with stuttering. I'm, you know, looking for, at least me, I'm looking for resources. So we don't mind providing those. And so, you know, um, parents have certainly asked us just for, you know, research articles or anything like that, um, you know, to kind of help uh, make it more collaborative and make it easier for the parents to know what's going on, understand what's going on, and for the uh, kid to get the best services. Um, But ultimately, school SLPs are awesome. They're always communicative. And um, I'm very thankful for that. I think that's the biggest thing is just always collaborating.
0: Yeah. And encouraging that collaboration between your kids therapist, you know, bringing it up, mentioning it. Um, and then also in, in previous podcasts, um, I think it was maybe one that I did with Laura Smith about a childhood apraxia speech and maybe the one with Amy Graham, but we talked about, and probably Carrie Ebert (laughs) anyway, I've talked to, to a lot of people about this, but again, I want to take the opportunity for parents and families that are listening. I want you to feel empowered to ask questions. You know, if you're seeking out help for your child, don't be afraid to ask that therapist what's your experience in working with children with cleft lip palate? How many, you know, how many cases like this do you see a year? Are you comfortable seeing my child? And do you feel confident in treating them? Because you want to make sure you're getting the best for your child. And, and those are a hundred percent, okay questions to ask. And it allows that therapist then to be honest with you and say, look, I don't have the experience you're looking for, but I can help you find somebody who does, you know? So again, don't be afraid to, to advocate for your kiddo. You are the expert on your kid. Sure. We're the speech therapists. You know, that speech is our area of expertise, but we don't know your child like, you know, your child. So advocate for them, be that voice that they need you to be, to get them the most that they can get out of their therapy and services that you're seeking out. So
1: That is an absolutely amazing statement. I completely agree with it. And speech pathology is such a wide scope. And I love, in a way, I love that about our field, but it also hinders us in some ways because as much as we want to be experts in every single thing from- Um, aphasia with adults who've had strokes all the way to pediatric feeding, like there's just no way to do it. Um, And so I completely agree that everyone who has kind of their niche or their specialties, let's rely on them. And then, uh, you know, eventually the favor will be returned. I certainly look, you know, for higher level language concepts, literacy, things like that. A lot of my kids have difficulties with that. And that's when I reach back out to my school SLPs who are literacy experts. And so I think there's no shame in finding Finding the right person. Um, I will say, in rural areas for cleft palate, it is a little bit harder. Um, but certainly now with COVID and telehealth, you know, I would say maybe try and find somebody who's willing to telehealth and is licensed um, across state lines who could help your child via telehealth. Um, and you know, uh, I know there's financial barriers certainly as well. Finding a cleft team is amazing, and even if that SLP can't on like treat your child ongoing like you said, provide the resources for the right SLPs who really know cloth, palate or craniofacial. I think it's amazing
0: absolutely okay all right so kind of starting to wrap things up here if we have families out there that want to learn more about cleft lip Palate, and or and or we have therapists out there that are treating kids um, on their caseload with cleft lip Palate, where do you direct these people to um, learn more about this specialty area and um, just understand it better and learn how to treat it better so
1: i'll start with the families there's some amazing family services um, one of the biggest kind of organizations is the ACPA, the American um, cleft and craniofacial, or cleft, sorry, craniofacial and cleft palate association. Um, you can go to ACPA online, just kind of Google it. And um, they have amazing resources for families. They have kind of these packets that they made, one for feeding, one for speech, just to kind of give a general overview. They also have a, um, this kind of database that they allow you to search for a cleft palate and craniofacial team on their site. So if your child is born with a cleft palate and you're like, I don't know what to do, Ah," um, you can go put in your um, state and you can look at all of the teams, look at what's nearby. um, And all of those are accredited Meaning, and they actually have to have a speech pathologist on their team, fun fact. So you know that those those teams have someone um, trained as an SLP. Um, so that is what I would say for families. The other great thing for families is um, clefline.org. Um, and again, those nonprofit organizations are amazing. They're amazing resources. Um, and some of them are specific to certain genetic syndromes, but certainly not all of them are. Um, Smile Train is an amazing one from more international um, aspects of it. Um, our team works really closely with an organization called My Face, which is amazing. And they do a lot of work. Um, with kind of feeling comfortable in your own skin and they do a lot of work with the author from wonder we talked about earlier um talking about facial differences and um they they go to schools and they do these amazing um lectures kind of or they're not really lectures they're more like these dynamic like group activities um, that you might have in the school system and they talk all about these things and they also have a lot of great resources for families um just to kind of understand that's like i said how i kind of was able to create this babbling hand out for health education. Um, so I would say looking up nonprofits, um, certainly for psychosocial support and also potentially financial support. Um, and then for professionals, uh, speech pathologist, the number one thing I do is refer them to as a kind of the first stop. It's called Leaders Project, all caps leaders project. It's on YouTube. And you there's a playlist. It's free because we all love our free continuing ed. Um, a lot of us don't want to pay for the big ACPA, you know, conference that I go to every year. Um, you know, which I love doing. Don't get me wrong. It's amazing. Yeah. But you know, as a first step, we're not going to drop like hundreds of dollars. So Leaders Project on YouTube is a free resource for SLPs and they have video modules. So they go into the different types of lip and palate: So unilateral, bilateral, just a isolated palate, all of those things, genetic syndromes, feeding, and you can go through each one. And they also go through all the therapy tips and tricks. So we talked a lot about today about what we find in terms of errors, but we didn't really talk too much about treatment strategies. And on there, they have amazing treatment strategies that you can utilize with your kids and they have free resources. So free game boards that are specific for cleft palate, books that are specific for cleft palate that are all free, um, that were funded through um, Columbia with my mentor, Dr. Craig Crowley, she's amazing. Um, And her kind of goal and mission is the same as mine, which is really just to get it out there and and be accessible for people. Um, Because ultimately, we just want to best for the kid. And then um, there's also some wonderful textbooks. Um, Dr. Ann Cummers' textbook, the um, Peterson Bellzone, the clinician's guide to treating cleft palate speech is a wonderful textbook. I actually use that myself when I'm like blanking on things. Um, I I believe it's Peterson Bellzone. And then uh, if you're really, really interested, certainly you can always come to the ACPA conference, which is once a year. And that is the plastic surgeons, ENT surgeons, um, orthodontics is big, genetics myself, social work, psychology, uh, some dietitians as well, and um, speech pathology, of course. So uh, I usually the teams go to that every year. And it's certainly, if you really want to learn more and really get into the latest research with Clough Palate, that would probably be your more advanced step.
0: Okay. And what time of year is usually that conference?
1: usually in the spring. Um, so I think this year coming up in 2022, it's in Fort Worth, Texas, and I forget if it's March or April, but it's somewhere around there. Okay. Um, and everyone kind of presents the latest research, and it's cool because you kind of go into interdisciplinary um, topics as well. So like I could sit in on a plastic surgery presentation, um, and it is really kind of enlightening to know the medical side of it. And that's how I explain things to families, you know, is how, knowing that kind of background. So uh i think it's the acpa if you go to the acpa website you'll be able to find out more about the
0: meeting for sure okay awesome and then how about meg if anyone has any specific questions for you or wants to reach out to you in the future what's the best way for them to get in touch with you
1: so the best way to communicate, honestly, is through my professional Instagram page. Um, Cause I check that pretty regularly and it's just easier. You know, I have so many patient emails all the time and things get lost. So I want to make sure that I'm kind of separating the two. And I love, love, love. I've had SLPs just direct message me on my Instagram handle and ask me for advice. Certainly I can't give specific patient advice, um, but I can provide resources or referrals. Like if you're looking for someone in the area, or um, if you're interested in coming in to see us, um, certainly you know reach out. My Instagram handle is at the t h e craniofacial, so c r a n i o facial f a c i a l. SLP. And it's also under my name. So you could um, look up Meglico SLP. Hopefully it would come up that way. I don't know how Instagram metrics work. Um, So, and I post like evaluation and therapy tips and tricks on there. Um, And also just some kind of general resources as well. And you can DM me on there. Um, Also, I'm open, I'm doing next month a, um professional development course with a private practice kind of group in Connecticut so if you're interested in that um certainly feel free to kind of drag message me on there too and I can kind of um give you some more information about that if there's a particular school system or private practice that's interested has a lot of SLPs who are like listening to this podcast and really want to know more about it
0: yeah awesome great okay thank you so much again Meg for um joining us for for um, giving us your time and, um, and sharing your knowledge. I really appreciate it. I've learned so much just in this short time that we talked. <laughs> so That's, I'm not, That's the goal. <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit it. This was an area I needed uh, more support in, and I'm so thankful to you for providing it in just this short amount of time, but um, you've definitely piqued my interest and you've given us some great resources to check out, to continue to deepen our knowledge and understanding of this diagnosis and how to support children and families as they move forward and grow and develop. So, Thank you again. We wish you all the best. Thank you for
1: having this podcast for allowing for families and professionals to be able to have this as a resource because I think it's amazing.
0: Thank you. We appreciate that. That's that's our goal. Just like you, similar to you, we just want to get information out there to support people and accurate information, right? Because the internet's a wonderful thing, but there's a lot of misinformation out there. So we want to work hard to get the right information out there to support families and children and, you know, being their best selves. So thank you again.
1: Okay. Thank care, you Meg. so much.
0: Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of More Than Child's Play podcast. Please follow us on Facebook Find us on Instagram at Milestones Miracles and on Twitter at Milestones M.